You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 42. Today we're discussing taking time off from your Chinese medicine clinic. We're going to look at holidays, more long-term leave like sabbaticals or longer travel adventures, as well as maternity leave. Hey everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchen. And I'm Claire Pyers. And today we're talking about how to manage taking time off and maternity leave. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode and if you really do enjoy our show, please rate us on iTunes. So welcome to our listeners to today's episode. Today we're talking about taking time off and in particular talking about maternity leave but also other types of extended leave whether it might be a long holiday that you might take four or six weeks or more off to go on a holiday. Some people take you know six or 12 months to go on some sort of sabbatical and um, it presents a lot of challenge um, on many layers I guess of the way that the clinics operate and um, there's lots of different nuances that that we can discuss and I will say that neither Fee nor I feel like we are experts in being able to do this in a successful way <laughs> but we still think that it's an important topic to discuss because it's something that at some stage all of us want to be able to take some time off um, and come back and still have a business that can sustain us. Um, so that's what we're talking about today. Mm, yes, we both have tried taking time off. I've tried it in most of the permutations I can think of. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, just just to the point that Claire said we're not experts on this, I certainly can't say that all the ways that I've taken time off have been effective in terms of um, keeping the clinic chi alive and flowing. But there are other times and ways in which we have taken time off that have worked really well, things we've learnt. Um, and also just I wanted to start by encouraging people to make sure they are having proper holidays and time off. I think um, depending on what country you're in, there's a certain amount of weeks per year that could be the norm that you would consider holidays. Um, we've mentioned that before. It's it's usually four weeks at least in Australia, but maybe only two or three in America. Um, so if you're in a different country practicing Chinese medicine, we'd love to hear from you and what kind of annual time off you aim for. Um, and then there's also different business models that allow people to have time off built in to the business. So that's also an interesting idea. Some people manage to do that really well where they can get a couple of months off every year. Uh, and then, I, yeah? Yeah, I think that, um, it, you know, something that's really important to acknowledge, you know, it's not just the minimum requirements, you know, that might be in other industries. I think that anyone who's in a healthcare profession needs to be mindful of the amount of time off that they're having each week as well as, you know, the the amount of larger chunks of time off that they might have for holidays and so forth. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, working one-to-one -one with people, it's quite difficult for most people to sustain working more than four days a week in practice. And, and in fact, I consider four days a week in clinic with patients, face-to-face -face with patients to be full-time with what we do. And I think it's very important for patient, uh, for practitioners to make sure that they're having at least two consecutive days off every week. Yeah, I can definitely speak to experiences with that. There was a time when I was building a clinic in a new location and I got two jobs in two different clinics in that, in that greater location, but it was a very long kind of rectangular shaped city so I had one clinic in the northern end and one in the southern and as a result of having the two clinics and needing to have time on enough as you say you need a minimum number of days that you're there to make 
to build the business in the first place. And most of us know that one day a week in a clinic location isn't really going to work or take off. You need it probably at least three. And yeah, if you're working much more than four, I was working six days to keep both of these locations alive with three uh, days at each location. And I did that knowing it was temporary because ultimately I had to choose between them and develop one of them. So it was a great opportunity, but the process of working six days a week really took its toll on my energy in a in a different way. I think it really just, it's like burning the candle at both ends on your kidney chi. That's how it affected me. Mm. Um, oh, big time. I see it. I see it happen all the time, you know, and particularly where, you know, a lot of people, they like the idea of working on a Saturday because a lot of people who have the income to afford the services that we offer are available to come to appointments on Saturdays. And, you know, certainly for me, Saturdays is definitely one of my busiest days and I'm, you know, booked out back to back weeks ahead for Saturdays. Mm. And so, you know, then you've kind of got Sunday off, but, it, you know, then do you want to work on Mondays? And so it's easy to then have a week where you might only work four days a week, but you don't ever get two days off in a row. And I think that two days off in a row every week is really important. Yeah. If yes. if we're kind of working from the micro to the macro and we start with, you know, at that base level and even just, you know, having lunch breaks is really mm -hmm. important and if we really want to get down to the nitty-gritty that, you know, that mm. that time off that you have, you know, so many practitioners don't even have proper lunch breaks. It's such a trap and I've fallen into that trap myself as well that, you know, you barely have enough time to, you know, to keep yourself <laughs> hydrated during the day, um, let alone actually having the time to sit down and properly contemplate and chew and digest a meal before you're back in with your patients again. Mm, there are a lot of practitioners I've seen who really rely on, if they get a lunch break, it's because there's no booking. Yeah. And I think the benefit of scheduling in your break, if you're doing long shifts, I think if you're doing six hours or so, you don't necessarily need to schedule in a break. Um, but if you're doing the eight out the full day or more, some people do nine hour days, you know, 25 patients and no break. So um, I think it's important for us to at least create a lifestyle for ourselves that we could recommend to one of our patients. Mm. Absolutely. Um, there's definitely an effectiveness that develops when we're actually living what we're teaching that transmits across as if it's less effort for us to encourage someone else to correct something in their own lifestyle. They receive it more easily if we're living it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I, th I think that plays out whether they even know or not what we're, what lifestyle we're living. Mm. It's like it actually builds a magnetism in your chi field to, you know, practice what you're preaching. Yeah, I, th I think so. Well, and, pa and patients get a sense of what you're up to anyway. They see mm. the way that your clinic operates and they see the, the type of chi that you come in with and, and leave with if you're, you know, running multiple rooms. They kind of can sense urgency, I guess, if you're, you know, if you're feeling pushed for time, patients will sense that. That's a good point, you know. I think if someone comes into a clinic and they see you, you they know you've got a, one, at least one other patient on the table, you're, you know, quickly passing them in the waiting room and saying, hey, I'll be there with you in a minute and taking a bite of your lunch and passing through and then you put your lunch down in the kitchen and you run back to pick up your next patient and you take them in. Um, you know, that's one thing in which the patient will feel prioritised and no doubt if you are eating lunch that way, that's how you book the patient in anyway. Um, but the other thing is, is that if they get to witness you sitting down eating your lunch and popping your head into the waiting room and saying, hi, I'm just finishing my lunch break, I'll be with you in a minute, and then you come back to them, you have supported them in their life to make space for properly eating and sitting down too. Yeah. Just by demonstrating it, you know, because maybe that's something they struggle with um, 
defending their own chance to sit down and eat properly and if they're you know a digestive complaint patient well then there you go that could be a really good thing to give them to show them as an example yeah so there are many there are many ways in which we we don't take time off to try and please our patients or cater to them or be there for them but we could also be helping them by managing our lifestyle with time off in a healthy way and demonstrating it yeah, it reminds me about uh, the way that um, my GP, my local doctor, she a few years ago was diagnosed with breast cancer and um, and she instructed the office staff to tell all of the patients that were ringing to, um, to make an appointment with her that she wanted everyone to know that she had breast cancer and that she was taking six months off to tend to her health and to recover and that she wanted people to know that so that she, you know, she could see, you know, that she wanted to be able to demonstrate that she was prioritising her health in a way that she would like her patients to be prioritising their health. And I just thought what what a great example to set as a doctor in doing that. I think that's a really important story because I'm sure there's several people listening who really struggle with needing to be a giver and not necessarily giving to themselves as much as they need. Oh, I'm sure we've all gone to clinic with, you know, runny noses and, you know, a cough that's probably a bit too over the line in terms of borderline of should I go and treat patients or not. It's really hard. It's really hard, you know, to like... We, we all want to feel like we've got this special superpower because we're Chinese medicine practitioners, you know, and we don't get sick. But, you know, ultimately we do get sick. And I think I actually use that wording sometimes when, it, you know, if I've got to notify my patients that I'm sick, sometimes I'll, um, you know, I'll send them a message saying, hey, you know what, my superpowers have failed and I've got a cold. You know, I'm not coming in today and, you know, we'll reschedule you or you can come and see one of the other practitioners, which, you know, I'm lucky I'm in a group practice. But it's um, it's really tricky to, you know, how do you make that call and how do you communicate that to your patients in a way that uh, leaves them still feeling positive about about you and about the services that you provide? Yeah, Basically, yeah, we're, yeah we're, we're teaching our patients with everything we do as well as responding to our obligation to be there for them. So how about we talk about uh, holidays briefly and before we get on to maternity leave and those longer-term sabbaticals and how they go. But uh, in terms of holidays and taking time off, I've found that you can really take one to two weeks multiple times a year and it's not a big problem. Yeah. Yep, I would agree with that. But even having said that, you mentioned the difference between being in solo practice and being in group practice, and then there's people who are in group practice with practitioners of other modalities. So that type of group practice isn't going to help have other people take care of your patients while you're away. But definitely, I mean, when I worked at Claire's clinic, it was... A wonderful relief for me in that aspect because I'd spent most of my years in solo practice or being the only Chinese med practitioner in the clinic and it was always difficult even on one day if I was terribly sick and I would have a patient coming in I mean God forbid you have someone coming in for something like a pre and post IVF transfer or those really time sensitive treatments patients who have got urgent pain, new patients coming in on that day. And it does does become more tricky to take the time off when you are on your own. So I think one of the really important resources for everyone in solo practice is to have people in your area that you are happy to refer your patients to on, a, on like an emergency basis like that. I wouldn't, it's not really an emergency, but on a short-term basis that if you have someone that you can say, look, can you treat these patients today that are urgent? They can't wait for me to reschedule, but I really can't work today. And to have that relationship with someone where there's trust, because I think the biggest thing is that people in solo practice are afraid of losing their patients to other people in solo practice. Yeah, and, you know, I hear stories all the time. I talk to other practitioners about their experience. 
I was just talking with another practitioner today about the time off that she took last time she was on maternity leave. And, you know, the practitioner who did the locum for her, you know, took some of her patients with him, you know, actually Mm. instructed them to come to see him at the other clinic. And, you know, that's, that's not cool. That that's not cool. But we'll 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 get to that when we're when we're well, talking about that. But I think single versus group practice is a very important considerations if you are solo. You know, the, you're the only Chinese med practitioner there because the way that we work is so unique. And seeing a naturopath is not the same as seeing us. Right. Um, and I think the main thing is just to make sure that when you are in solo practice that you actually have a network of resources. It's, it's very difficult to practice totally alone, you know, without even mentors, colleagues to discuss with or people to refer people to when you're not available. People to refer people to who specialise in areas that you don't do. Um, and it, it really improves the experience of the patient. So if you look at this from the patient's perspective, it really doesn't help them if their practitioner is so isolated that they can't give them an alternative for a treatment if the practitioner is suddenly unavailable. So it could actually warm them to you more and be less of a threat for losing patients to have that kind of network operating. Of course, it does depend on who's around you and what kind of relationships you can build, but it, I think it's really worth it. Mm. Yeah, I think those in really small towns would probably... It would be a different dynamic anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so what about taking more than two weeks off at once? Well, look, there's something I want to say about group practice and the and the experience of kind of having someone else in the same clinic look after your patients. And it's something that I've seen happen quite a number of times over the last few years, and that's that you will sometimes have patient attrition when you take time off or if other people are seeing your patients. And sometimes that's because the patient will sometimes just feel like they just resonate with the other practitioner more. And that might just be at that point in time or it may, you know, there could be all kinds of reasons for it. But sometimes, you know, we've had scenarios that my um, receptionists have dealt with over the years where a patient will kind of say, oh, I know that I normally come and see, you know, practitioner A but I really want to come and see practitioner B is that going to be okay for me to see them instead you know I want to see them for a little while or that sometimes they don't give a reason and I think that that's important to um, important to be aware of that that you know even though you can be really um, really altruistic and very kind of like clear agended about it sometimes patients just have a preference and they feel a greater affinity for some practitioners more than others Um, and so that's something that I've seen happen in in a group practice where there is not really any competitiveness around you know who's got more patients or anything like that like everyone gets paid in my clinic and that's something that I've seen happen and so you know it is it is tricky to be seeing someone else's patients and not have things like that sometimes happen. But um, I think it's it's something to be something to be aware of that um, when you do have any any type of time that you're spending away from your patient, whether it's you you know you're away for two or three weeks and then, they come back to see you or whether they're seeing someone else while you're away, it's a point of reflection for them and they may choose to just use that that point of reference to then say, well, actually, I'm just going to see how I go and not come back for a while. Or yeah. you know, people have abandonment issues, people have all kinds of stuff that go on when you say, I can't be here for you. Um, and that's going to sometimes it can happen just with one week off. But generally speaking, I do agree that anything less than two weeks is fine in terms mm. of, you know, you're not going to have patient, you're not going to have real patient attrition happen mm. in that time. Having participated in that environment where it was non-competitive and every now and then a patient would change practitioners, uh, and, and I would say this was a really, um, this was a good example of how it should work. 
uh, and how it can work. This was the a successful example. Often it's because sometimes a patient's been coming to see someone for a long time, maybe six months or a year, and the tone of what they're focusing on or the symptoms has changed and they then become a better match with someone. Yeah. Um, and I think that if you're in that environment, in that group practice and worried about letting the others, um, you know, take care of the gaps that may occur if you get sick or take time off, I think it's really worthwhile because the patients benefit. I always prefaced time off if I could, if it was um, like when I was there and I took four weeks off, um, which was planned. I was going overseas for four weeks and coming back and so that was long enough that most of my patients needed someone else to treat them during that time and some of them really needed something more than weekly and I felt really positive about saying to them that while I was away I suggested they see this person or that person at the clinic that I was at so we kept them in house and I let them know that all the case notes would be shared and so there wouldn't be any gaps in knowing what's been happening so far and that I also thought it would actually be really fantastic for their case to have another doctor have a look at it and give their input and I really tried to make it a positive thing that even though I would be away for a month that we as a team would still be looking after that patient and that their case could benefit from having extra eyes on it mm. and for me as a practitioner if that process led to any of my patients swapping to be with the other practitioner for a while I feel very graceful about it because I feel like as long as I know they're getting what they needed and as long as it's not a pattern if there's one particular person who just happens to keep ending up with all my patients then there's something we need to investigate but I'm an equal part of that too and I need to investigate myself and why are my patients leaving me so I think it's really important to replace competition and fear of competition with confidence in yourself and in your ability to solve your own problems with your own patients and your retention rate and that, that we all have a retention rate that we're, we're experiencing from the moment we start practising and a lot of us are very aware of how well we attract new patients and how long patients stay with us for and that's really got a lot to do with the way that we interact with them and how we communicate with them about what to expect from treatments and programs as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I also want to add to that that when you're in a group practice, it's important to really get to know what each of the practitioner's individual strengths are, their clinical strengths and their interests, because often there's um, different aspects of um, patients' health that can be better addressed by by seeing another by seeing another practitioner and you know being on holiday can be a really great opportunity for someone to get you know get a couple of sessions in with the with the the, the digestive expert or someone who's the the expert in um, in sleep or musculoskeletal problems for example because not all of us are amazing at every aspect of clinical practice Right. And that brings me to another way to keep your patients engaged with you during your time away. You can give them homework and that homework can involve going to see other practitioners or, you know, um, things that you've referred or recommended that they do and perhaps their therapies that you can't do that you think would be suitable for them. Um, perhaps it's a particular diet or something like that. So you can say, all right, well, I'm going to be away for three or four weeks, but during the meantime, I want you to go and, you know, do this, go and get that, um, go and see the osteopath for, for whatever's happening with that bone or go and get the colonics or whatever it is that you've also been talking about that might be good for them and give it to them as a sense of homework and ask them to report back to you about it and to keep you in the loop as to how it's going and what's happening because that will also help bring them back to you rather than just wander off go to see the other practitioner and you never hear from them again mm -hmm. yeah I find for me um I find for me that in terms of the the duration of time that that I take off because I'm because I'm the clinic owner it's a bit it's a bit more involved for me to take extended periods of time off um, so if we're starting to move towards talking about the duration 
of, um, you know, what to do when you're taking more than a week or two off. Typically, I will take lots of short breaks throughout the year. So I'll take like two weeks or one week, but I'll take, you know, four or five lots of, of that. And so it, it, it tallies up to probably about eight to 10 weeks a year that I'm taking off, but it's not all at once. So I think that is the most foolproof method. If anyone's listening out there and just wants to know what works, take less than two weeks at a time and do it several times a year and give people lots of warning. Yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And look, I've seen, from what I've seen of what works with um, with other practitioners who've worked at my clinic and what keeps them connected to the to the clinic and keeps the chi of their own patient interactions going is to have somewhere between eight and 12 weeks off a year, but not all at once, like in chunks of three weeks or mm. less at a time. And that seems to work quite well. But when you're, when you're looking at maternity leave, it's a very different proposition. And that for me was the first time that I'd ever taken I think the longest I'd ever taken off prior to going on that leave was three weeks and that was when I went to get married and um, you know it's 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 really difficult because you don't know what to expect you don't know what's going to come you know that at some stage you're going to have a baby arrive and that at some stage you're going to come back and you hope that you'll be able to take some time off but for a lot of people that that time off doesn't come easily you know it comes at a bit of a cost and often there's a bit more stress involved and that was certainly that was certainly my experience when I had um when I had my maternity leave that I um I finished up work at 32 weeks pregnant which for me was a really great time to finish up because I really started to slow down it was a very very hot summer and uh, we had, you know, a week solid of 45 degrees Celsius, which I think, tell me if I'm wrong, Fee, but that's something up around like 110 degrees Fahrenheit or yeah. maybe maybe yep. slightly hotter. <laughs> like it's You're just, looking at 110 or maybe even 115, I'm not sure. Yeah, really hot and so it's so uncomfortable and very swollen and very, very ready to not be having to try and focus on patients, um, you know, but that was two months of, of not being at the clinic and that's just not being with patients but also not being with my staff. And, and you know, for people who are clinic owners or clinic, you know, if you're kind of the principal practitioner, then it kind of adds an extra layer of difficulty because you've not only got your patients that need to be cared for, but you've also got the running of the clinic and your staff that need to be cared for. Um, and that's a very tricky proposition. I'd love to speak to anyone who's done that successfully. Um, I think it involves having an excellent practice manager on board and still needing to have some level of interaction whilst you're gone. Yeah, it's yeah, a and very tricky proposition. Without having that excellent practice manager who's probably already been with you for a while as well so that they can handle things when you're gone, even if you are the owner and you take time off, you're not going to have time off email because they're going to be emailing you all the time with all the questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, ideally, I mean, this all comes into probably what would be a, an entirely different episode on, you know, how do you hire staff? For, mm. your, for your clinic but one of the criteria that I have for my clinic is that basically within a, a fairly short but reasonable period of time that my staff are self-managing by and large if they require someone looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're getting their work done or if you know if they're having to ask the same question five six seven times then quite possibly they're not the right fit for the clinic because <laughs> you know it's it doesn't serve anyone really if um you know if it requires two people's input in order for their job to get done sure mm. yeah um and so during times of more extended leaves like the maternity leave um which i have not taken maternity leave but i've had two extended trips one was 6 months and one was 4 months during those, I would also recommend to keep your patient newsletter going 
Mm. And having something like that is really important. Although, here's the interesting thing. I'm advising that. Although for me personally, I took two trips. One was six months and there was no newsletter. I was working in a group practice, but everybody did something different to me. But it was just a very busy clinic in an area where people walked in every day. So I was able to actually take six months off there, come back, and it really only took a couple of weeks for me to be booked out again. Mm. Um, but I think that that if the people that have those kind of clinics, that is such a great resource and score you have. I would not assume that other clinics are going to have that kind of constant traffic. There's a special combination of locations and population. I don't know what it is, but some clinics are really lucky that just get a lot of walkthrough traffic. Mm. And that first time I took the six months off and it was overseas, I didn't do anything to stay in touch with people. And it came back and it worked, but I think it worked because that clinic worked whether I was in it or not. And then the second time was years later, so I certainly didn't do them close together. But the second time I took four months off, I actually went to do training, martial arts training and practice, and it was like a temple retreat of me meditating and doing martial arts and building my chi for four months. And I had a locum and I maintained monthly newsletters. And I would say that the locum probably only got one third of my patient load, even though I had really done a lot of communication with every single patient to encourage them to see the locum and that I'd studied with the locum and that she was great and she didn't do anything wrong. But it was just really difficult to encourage people who were really connected to me to see the locum. And then when I came back, I was able to build the business again, but it was very slow and very difficult and most of the building came with new patients. So in that particular circumstance, it didn't work. And the main difference between the clinics was they were both multimodality group practices and at both of them I was the only acupuncturist. But the main difference was that one of them had a lot of street traffic and the other one had zero street traffic. So even though I'm advising people to do those things with the newsletter, in my particular experience on that occasion, it didn't work. But the reason why I think it didn't work is because the nature of what I was doing with myself while I took time off. And I was doing so many practices and new practices and martial arts and retreat and I didn't even speak to anyone for a month on a meditation retreat. I really, I would say, upgraded and changed my energy configuration during that time. And when I came back, it was no longer suitable for me to keep my business at that location. And I would say that that was also a big part of why I couldn't really rebuild that clinic. And so if that's happening to people, you might have the feeling that you're starting to deeply question well, am I meant to be doing this? Am I meant to be doing this, but perhaps at a different place? Um, and sometimes that can be happening to you when you take time off and you drop back into something, but it's only really, it's part of your past. So then you're going to have to move forward and create something new. Uh, and that's definitely a, a tricky experience and can take a long time and, and you can lose a lot of money depending on how long it takes for you to relocate. <laughs> <laughs> re-embody your, your new self and who you are now but I think that's really relevant for people who are going on sabbatical and those type of personal journey extended holidays. Mm. Yeah you know and I guess that that transformation can happen either through you know the birth of a new person or just you know through some type of transformational process that you know similar to that what you went through. That's right. So if you take maternity leave and you're a mother now and a lot of things have fundamentally changed or you're at the next stage of your path, you may find that you need to somewhat reinvent your business because it's an extension of you. Mm. Yeah, and I definitely did that when I came back from maternity leave, shook everything upside down. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Gave my staff <laughs> a bit of a bit of a fright, I think. They're like, wow, what's going on? But, um, you know, I had a very different priorities and became really quite ruthless with the way that I um, cut back on a lot of extraneous tasks, really. Like I just wanted to do the, the minimum in terms of what would be efficient and effective and not additional 
not too much additional stuff, you know, because I wasn't, you know, you've got a, a little baby at home who's waking up every three to four hours to feed and that's just, you know, ongoing, ongoing, unrelenting for months at a time and you just, it, it really um, doesn't leave a lot of leftover for the extra stuff that can come along with running a clinic and seeing patients and so forth. Hmm. And on that note, I would say that at the start of the episode, I did say that I consider four days a week to be full time. I will say that I really strongly believe that, um, particularly with people who have young children at home, that it's um, it's very difficult to work more than three days a week without burning out if you've got little ones at home. Really mm. Oh yeah, I I have marvelled several times just watching the stamina of women who are coming back into clinic, and usually it's a gradual return because your baby's younger, and you have to wait till they're older before you may even come back full time, um, and some wouldn't for years, wouldn't do full time. So I think in some ways, depending on the type of patients you have, especially if you're a fertility clinic, your patients will really be supportive of things like maternity leave much more so than if you just say I'm taking off <laughs> for some months. Yeah. And then, you know, then there's the option of when you come back in and you maybe after maternity leave, when you have a young baby and you're coming back, maybe you're only doing one half day shift a week. What do you think about bringing the baby in? To the clinic? Well, I think that if they're really little, babies generally sleep quite a lot, but it would depend on what sort of, uh, on what sort of patients you're treating. You know, if you're treating a lot mm. of infertility, they don't necessarily want to have a little baby no. right in their face. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, babies aren't predictable. You know, you might have a really a really good natured baby who's having a really bad day and they could just be screaming for four hours and that's not necessarily cool either. I think it's really tricky. That's something that, uh, that I did have as a plan. One of, one of my plans of how I thought it might look for me to go back to work was to be having a nanny come in and to just to help with looking after the baby and that I could have, you know, a couple of breaks during the day for feeding and um, and that sort of thing. But it didn't turn out that way just with the way that um, the dynamics worked in, in our family and so that didn't eventuate. But that was something that I did really um, closely consider, you know, having the baby with me at work rather than having to kind of rush off to express, you know, <laughs> in between feeds and, you know, it was it was really quite funny really quite a funny time you know I would people would ask me about my baby and then I'd be thinking about my baby and then I'd you know sometimes start to have a really quite strong milk let down and it was really um yeah it was it was a very funny time a very funny time <laughs> but thankfully I didn't have a, a huge milk supply so I never you know drenched my shirts or anything like that but <laughs> It's quite a strange, yeah, it's quite a strange thing. You know, people would bring their babies in and their baby would start to cry and then I'd, you know, then I'd have yeah. the milk let down and, you know, little babies would be cuddling me and trying to, you know, trying to get into my top and I'm like, no, you can't, this is not your milk. <laughs> you know. But babies are, you know, they're very single focus. They're very, um, they're programmed mm. to sniff things out. So that's okay how it works. But um, yeah, you know, there were some funny moments. You know, if you're trying to express, but you're rushing around between patients, it's not very conducive to to getting a good breast milk flow. And um, that can make the transition back to work tricky because you know sometimes women are really financially you know they're going back to work often for financial reasons before they're ready to go back that was certainly the case for me um, that I needed to go back a lot sooner than I would have liked um, I went back to work when my daughter was eight weeks old and certainly not what I had planned but that's what eventuated and um, yeah it was it was tricky and you know carrying around um, breast pumps and you know watching the clock and 
even though I was only there for four hours, it was, you know, it was really tricky to, to coordinate it all and get out of the house on time. And, you know, sometimes I'd be getting to work and I'd only had two or three hours sleep and that was really tough too. Um, mm. and so I think taking the maternity leave is one thing, but then transitioning back into work is really quite, quite tricky, really tricky. Yeah. I don't know. I think. I don't know how to do it well. Well, <laughs> when I was working at Claire's clinic, there was not just Claire, but another practitioner as well had a baby fairly close together. So there was a couple of new babies in the clinic. It's a very baby-friendly clinic, but I really have to appreciate how much effort the women had to make to do something like a four-hour shift, how many things a mum with a young baby has to organise just to be able to be away from her baby for four hours. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely a consideration if you are perhaps not yet a mother but soon to become one and looking at your own maternity leave plans and Although, you know, the other side is that Claire let me know that becoming a mother showed her that she can get so many more things done in a day. I think you said you realised that you could get enough done to run a small country in a day. Well, yeah, I realised that... became a lot more efficient. <laughs> before I had a baby, the amount of spare time I had that just, you know, flew away into the ether... I could have run a small country in my spare time prior to having a child because I just mm. wasted so many moments. Whereas, you know, once you've got a small person, you know, the first the first couple of months you really, you know, especially with a firstborn, I've heard that it gets easier with with subsequent children, which I am looking forward to that when we eventually have more children. But that's um, probably because you've already lost all your spare time and well, now you're in the swing of it. Yeah, I mean, you just every spare, like every moment of every day is accounted for, because otherwise you just can't. You know, the first two months that Rachel was around, I'm like, there were some days, you know, and this is a very common experience. But there's some days where you just can't even get yourself organized to have a shower or open the curtains. It's like. Mm. You know, you just don't know how these things can happen. You're like, oh, my God, where does where does my day go? Why does it take me two hours to get out of the house? You know, and I'm a, <laughs> I'm a really I'm a really effective person. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm really efficient. I'm, you know, very successful in my career and I'm reduced to this mess of a person that can't even get out of the house. And so eventually you kind of work it out and you get your own kind of process happening and, and in that process, a lot, what a lot of mothers find is that these five and ten minute windows that you have in your day, and everyone has them, you can actually get so much stuff done. And that's, I think, what happens with, well, that certainly was what happened with me is that I'm like, wow, I've got all these pockets of time that I can get things done. And, um, you know, and it enabled me to write a book after I had my child. So I was running a clinic and seeing full patient load and was able to write a book and do all kinds of things. And that's just through, I think, that efficiency that is forced upon to um, parents of small children. I don't doubt the power of that forced efficiency, but I do want to let the listeners know that Claire is quite a powerhouse and you shouldn't necessarily be expecting the same of yourself. Well, yeah. I'm definitely a type A personality. <laughs> Kudos to you. So are there any other things that we can recommend for people to do in terms of keeping in touch and keeping patients ready to come and book in with you again when you're back? Well, how about we just talk a little bit about criteria for selecting a locum? Um, okay. I think that it's important to, you know, we, we touched on it at the start of the episode, but it's important for there to be a, um, a respect on behalf of the locum of, you know, like it's a great honour to allow someone to come into your space and to treat your patients. And I, I think that, you know, you need to be very mindful of the way that you conduct yourself and to make sure that you don't, you know, do, do anything to jeopardise that connection between the patient and their practitioner. There's a lot of, you know, I guess we all hear a lot of the dodgy stories. We don't necessarily hear the great stories, probably because we just expect that things would go well and you don't necessarily go, oh, wow, my locum was amazing. 
you know, I came back mm-hmm. and all my patients were still coming to the clinic. <laughs> you know, mm. Most people would just expect that that's what would happen. Yeah, I think from my experience with having a locum where I don't feel that the locum did anything wrong I, and I didn't really have a great selection because I was in a region with not a lot of acupuncturists so I really had the only one and only option so I thought I'd give it a go. But I think one of the main reasons why it didn't work so well, it worked well for the third of the patients that did go to see the locum, but is because we had quite different communication styles as a practitioner and my patients were quite used to me explaining things with a certain kind of specificity or in a certain way. And some people practice Chinese medicine with quite different ways of explaining what they're practicing to people or communicating to patients about what they're doing. And I'm on the more communicative side, whereas I think the locum that I had didn't really communicate things in the same way as me and and that was what the patients were looking to connect with. Yeah, I think that that's a big part, you know. A lot of people will say to me that even though they like, you know, the other practitioners in in my clinic will give them the same, you know, they'll get the same outcome from the treatment, you know, they might get a similar herbal formula, they might have you know, the similar benefits from an acupuncture treatment. But one of my patients said it so succinctly. She said, but Claire, they're just not you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people come because they want you rather than your treatment modality. That's right. And it's the foundation of the therapeutic relationship that it's actually our relating that is therapeutic. Mm. And so in in a lot of regards, a locum is not going to provide that to your patient. They're providing, Mm. you know, logistic support, I guess, but it's that relationship that um, a lot of patients develop with their practitioner, particularly when the practitioner practices in the way that I know that Fee and I both practice similarly, Um, whereas, you know, people who are probably a bit more matter-of-fact and less chatty might not have that same problem. And so then choosing a locum would be more straightforward because then you just choose a locum based on their training and their clinical experience and not necessarily so much based on their personality. There are some types of clinics, though, I think that locums could work for better, and that is when people in general are treating patients for shorter durations, more acute conditions. So Claire and I both treat more serious illness. We may have patients anywhere from six months to two years in chronic conditions, and that's when it's really hard to replace you or to have a temporary person filling in what you're doing. But if you are, mostly your clinic is made up of treating people between six and ten treatments, you're doing a lot of pain work or something and you've got someone in who is really effective at what you do, then I think in those circumstances a locum could really be effective. And if there's anyone who has those kind of experiences, please write in and let us know because a discussion really helps everybody and Claire and I just don't work in that kind of way where we would have that experience so that's one I think probably is effective for a lot of practitioners out there. So hopefully to wrap up and come full circle hopefully you're all in agreement with us that taking time off is very important and hopefully you've all worked out a way to do it in a in a sustainable way both for your clinic but also for yourself like you know keeping ourselves topped up spiritually and you know keeping our chi topped up you know by making sure we're taking enough time off on the micro level all the way through to the holiday level (laughs) from from lunch breaks through to holidays maybe that's what we can call the episode it's something that's a really important thing to try and I think it's a work in progress certainly for me um, I'd like to get better at it and hopefully in my uh, in my third decade of clinical practice maybe I'll get there but I'm not sure that I'll get there in my second decade. <laughs> I'm already halfway through and or close to halfway through my second decade of clinical practice and I don't think I've nailed it. Well, I can honestly say I spent the first decade with the practice business structure fantasy that this is what I want. I want to work for nine months of the year and maybe have a week or two off during those nine months here and there and then have three months off a year. But in my experience, I'm probably going to have to change my mind about that being my ultimate plan 
because it doesn't really seem to work and to switch that to saying, well, I could still have two to three months off a year, but I'll probably have to spread it out more. But if anyone is managing to do that, I'd love to hear the circumstances in which you're doing it. I think definitely in the United States, there is possibly some business structures in certain cities that could work where a lot of people snowbird for the winter. And so if as a practitioner, you were also snowbirding, that may work out. But I'd like to hear of a story if anyone's able to be doing that. Is it when people just decide to go up to the snow and ski for like three months? It's kind of the opposite, but I think that works as well. That's oh, they go away. A, they go away when that's it's if snowing. You, if you live in Australia or the tropics and you go to the snow for three months, that could be a thing, but it's actually the opposite. It's when people, most of the United States snows. So a bunch of people, uh, especially more so retirement age people, are able to go to Florida for three months a year or even longer. Some do, some do longer, especially retired people. So if your practice was really having people who were snowboarding as your clientele, then perhaps as a practitioner, you could also do it. So I'm not sure. I'd love to hear if anyone's doing it. And I wonder if there's people out there who kind of run their clinics more based on treatment programs rather than kind of that idea of selling single consults and whether they, you know, are starting their treatment programs or making sure that their treatment programs are ending at the same time that they're wanting to go on their holidays and maybe maintaining a waiting list or having people lined up and ready to start their programs for when they return from the holiday. Um, I wonder if that might be something that people are doing and that's working successfully in being able to take off big chunks of time but still have reliable income either side of that time off. Great. We want to hear okay. from our listeners. We want to hear from you because there's so many different combinations and possibilities around this and we've only got, you know, our own experiences to share. And we'd love to hear what your experience is too. So please do that on our Facebook page. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye for now. <laughs> Bye for now.